This is an ABC podcast. So nearly 31,000 years ago, in the wild, cold world of Ice Age, northern Siberia, two children shed two baby teeth. The teeth lay on the earth, waiting. Two boys, they would have probably lived like the typical apoparolithic hunter-gatherer lifestyle hunting mammoths and other large animals. Such a different reality to 12-year-olds today who are all on TikTok and Snapchat and... <laughs> Can <laughs> <Absolutely>. you imagine? <laughs> My God, what a life. No, I mean, even if you would transplant us grown-ups there, we would probably not last for very long. We would freeze in a split second. <laughs> yeah. Fast forward now to over 200 years ago and the controversial French revolutionary Jean-Paul Marat was taking a bath when a young Charlotte Corday entered his room, pulled a knife out of her bodice and killed him. His blood spattered across the newspaper he was reading in the tub. So in this case, what we get back is human DNA. So that's potentially Mara's DNA, but it's of course every curator that's handled the newspaper, everybody else. We get any kind of commensal microbes, the microbes we all have on our skin. We have microbes that he would have had in his skin. We get very many possible contaminants. You know, we can imagine someone had a cough when they were handling the newspaper. We could have all kinds of things. Mm. But in amongst all of that, we might also have potential to, to pick up pathogens. So um, the real challenge is to take that, you know, incredibly rich source of information and work out the kind of signal to noise, essentially. Then around just 80 years ago, a microscope slide, the sort you'd see in a medical pathology lab, is smeared with the blood of a sick Spaniard who's been labouring in European rice fields. Let's fast forward now to a few years ago and those slides are found in a, in a drawer where we have the, the blood smears of individuals, so these rice workers that have been affected by malaria and the opportunity to, to see if we were able to generate genetic data from, from those slides. The plasmodium parasites that cause malaria were eradicated from Europe in the 1970s. And that's what's interesting here. The DNA on those slides had secrets to share about when and where both humans and malaria have travelled from Europe to the Americas. Yet wherever we go, our diseases go with us. And so our current understanding, at least of this one um, genome, and of course it's just one and we're, we're after more, we'd love to have more, is that this is very consistent with a spread associated with the colonial period from Europe into the Americas of Plasmodium vivax. And that was really only possible by having this observation of, of a European genome. All of these long gone people have something in common. Hidden in the threads of their genomes are the ghost stories of pandemics past. On Science Friction, it's Natasha Mitchell, and I want you to meet these ancient DNA detectives who are rapidly rewriting the deep history of infectious diseases. The oldest evidence we have for a human virus infection would have been 7,000, maybe 7,500 years ago, not older than that. Uh, a hepatitis B virus. So this was really the oldest direct evidence we had for a human infecting virus. That example comes from DNA extracted from the skeletal remains of a farmer from Neolithic-era Germany. But that record of around 7,000 years or so has just been beaten. And Dr Martin Sikora from the Geogenetics Centre at the University of Copenhagen was on the team who made the big finding of the oldest ever direct molecular evidence of a human virus. 
This pandemic we're living through now, of course, isn't the first time that a pathogen, a virus, a bacteria has rewritten the course of human history. The plague of Athens is really thought to have devastated civilizations. Here we were looking at kind of around the period of the Peloponnesian War had an enormous impact on, on the collapse of that civilization. Get this, one figure has it that well over half of the humans that have ever lived have been killed through infectious diseases. The Justinian plague is another brilliant example where we, we think about 100 million or so people of, of ancient Rome were, were affected by the Justinian plague or died from the Justinian plague. And that really is thought to have led to the collapse of the Roman Empire, which obviously had massive implications historically. And as our human ancestors migrated out of Africa and spread across the planet along trade routes. For example, the Silk Road, um, which has been thought to be linked to the spread of plague, leprosy, anthrax, amongst, amongst kind of many other pathogens. Or to invade and colonise the lands of others. And the spread of European colonists into the Americas in the 16th century smallpox, measles, malaria, potentially typhoid fevers have all been linked to these migrations um, with massive impacts. So smallpox, for instance, really indigenous populations, uh, case fatality was reaching close to 100%. Dr Lucy Van Dorp from the Genetics Institute at University College London. This coronavirus pandemic will put us in the pages of history books too. But another kind of history book lies inside each and every one of your cells, your DNA. And likewise, the DNA of ancient viruses tells an evolutionary history of when they first infected us, of who they infected, of how they changed or mutated over millennia in some cases. Diseases have been with us as long as we can think of and, and really have shaped everything about our history, whether it's our behavior, our, our art, our stories, and, and of course our genomes also, which is also a super interesting field to study. We, we see the imprints of these infectious diseases in our own genomes also as we have adapted to cope with them. And many pathogens have been linked to what's called the Neolithic Revolution. So the period in history at sort of eight to 10,000 years ago when we were moving to a farming-based lifestyle as opposed to a hunter-gathering-based lifestyle, so changing our relationships with animals, domesticating crops, living in denser societies. And of course, we have the adenoviruses, the herpes, the malaria, which seem to be much, much more ancient than that. And, you know, actually nailing exactly when these, these pathogens started infecting humans is, is something difficult, but ancient DNA is, is really going to help us. Traditionally, scientists and historians look to old records, books, stories, medical notes for clues, the descriptions of symptoms, a pustulant sore here, a shaking fever there, a, a red rash maybe, evidence from the dead. And the same is true for sort of skeletal marks, so there are also certainly diseases that leave certain marks on, on, on the human remains like syphilis would be one of those, or, or leprosy. Those we can tell from investigating the bones, but, but again, they are quite rare, these type of diseases. Most of them, particularly most viral infections, would not necessarily leave any kind of trace on the bones that could tell us that this is what you know killed this person, for example, or even that this person was infected with at the time of death, if we find like a human skull or something. But DNA sequencing technology has come a mighty long way and the newer techniques are allowing scientists to scrape or extract minute amounts of DNA from ancient remains, sequence it 
and compare it to vast genomic catalogues of known pathogens today. And as it turns out, one of the best remains to find out about ye olde infectious diseases is from... Well, because our mouth is, yeah, where we take everything in, right? So Your teeth. Actually, our teeth are in our gums before we are born. So you can actually find isotopes of the environment you're living in from before you're born, and they are still in your teeth. Dr. Sophie Holtzmark-Nielsen, who did her PhD with Martin Sikora's team at the University of Copenhagen. And because we have in our teeth, there are a lot of blood wings. Because of that, we can use teeth also to study ancient infections and ancient infectious diseases. If there was enough DNA of a particular pathogen in the blood, let's say someone died of plague, lots of bacteria floating around the bloodstream, it turns out there is usually enough DNA present even in those little blood vessels that go through the teeth that we can then find evidence for that DNA when, when, if, we, if we sequence those. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't get your teeth cleaned and polished when you go to the dentist to get those layers of plaque removed from your teeth, but... Back then, they didn't really clean their teeth and we didn't have a dentist or anything, so there's a lot of amazing plaque under the teeth that we can study for how our mouth looked back then and what we ate and then what kind of diseases they have. Wow, it's almost the teeth, ancient teeth are almost like a kind of a history book of of humanity. And of course, vaccines today are going to change the course of viruses and their evolution. Our bones and teeth will tell a very different story. Yeah, and also because now we go to the dentist and get our teeth cleaned all the time. Every time we're like, oh no. All that information that's lost, <laughs> my teeth are so clean, we can't find anything. Oh no, I love that. So when you go to the dentist to have your plaque cleaned off by the dental hygienist, you actually grieve, you grieve the lost stories in your DNA. Yeah, I have thought of before, like, oh no. Have pity then on DNA detectives of the future like Martin and Sophie. And so to their team's recent amazing discovery, it started with a really special Paleolithic archaeological site, first reported by Russian scientists in 2004. One of the most incredible sites, I think, in general, if you're interested in, in early human history, because it is a, what was likely like a summer camp for the, the hunter-gatherers of northeastern Siberia at that time. And it's really extremely remote. So it's, it's, it's uh, above the Arctic Circle. Uh, it's the earliest human remains that have been found north of the Arctic Circle, where you get to almost to the Americas, really, really far north and really, really far east. So extremely remote. And the earliest direct evidence for human occupation in the high Arctic. We'll wait for this. Amongst the carved mammoth bones, woolly rhino horns, stone tools and other mammal remains and artefacts left by the hunters over 31,000 years ago were three tiny objects. Three human baby teeth. It's even more special than that because actually those baby teeth were the only human remains found there. So we, to this day, there are only three human remains that have been found in that site and these are basically three baby teeth. But in those single teeth, a wealth of stories were just waiting to be told. Two of which we managed to get sent to Copenhagen for DNA uh, studies. My colleague Morten Allentoft started working on them and managed to get really, really good, well-preserved DNA out of those two milk teeth. It's a challenge, what you're, you're dealing with. Dr Lucy Van Dorp also collaborated on the project. 
Um, it's that in the soil. There's lots of contaminants. That DNA has, as soon as someone dies, it starts to degrade very quickly after after death. So what we get back is really um, a genetic suit. I can imagine you've got to be extremely careful too about not not contaminating the samples with contemporary viral DNA. As we know, viruses are around all the time. Yeah, exactly. They're they're an incompletely suited up when they go into the lab. They have an entire bodysuit and gloves and mask and everything on when they handle these samples, which is a bit funny because out on the archaeological side, they do whatever and in the museums and they've been all around, right? And then first when we get it, it's like, oh no, now we've got to dress up completely so nothing would transfer. But of course, a lot have already transferred from all the handling before <laughs> us. But yeah. Once the DNA is sequenced, that's when Sophie Holtzmark-Nielsen's work starts. I'm a bioinformatician, so I only work on the computer. So I get everything after it's sequenced. So I have yeah, lines of letters of DNA sequences. And then my job is to study the DNA and figure out what organism is it and how does it look compared to other organisms we have from references in the modern day. So it's a different kind of archaeological dig. You don't get to go to Siberia. No, unfortunately not. The way that you can imagine this is that, that you know, when you, when you sequence the DNA of a tooth like that or anything that was buried for a very long time, in most cases, particularly if it's that old or not that well preserved, maybe 99% of what you sequenced is actually just from the environment. So these are just bacteria, you know, fungi, whatever was, is in the soil around that tooth. But scientists have made a whole lot of progress in being able to disentangle extraneous DNA from meaningful human DNA or pathogen DNA on these sorts of remains. To get a sense of the scale, I mean, basically one out of a million DNA molecules that we sequence came from these viruses, right? So we sequenced 10 billion DNA molecules in, in the one sample, for example, and we only got 6,000 of those assigned to adenovirus, for example, and, and actually less than that to herpes virus. So it's, it's, it's at most one in a million that is actually coming from the virus. So this is really, it is really the needle in the haystack. And so when they interrogated the DNA of whatever was in and on these two tiny baby teeth, they made a big finding. And in this case, these two milk teeth actually yielded up a, a number of pathogens, so some herpes viruses, but also two very um, high, well, not very, I should say, we're talking ancient DNA land, so low quality but good for ancient DNA genomes of human adenovirus C, which is a genome which is very common as a, a childhood viral infection. It infects us today. And we were able to use the genetic material from these milk teeth to say, well, actually, you know what, it was infecting these children too all that all those time ago. And when they looked more closely at that ancient DNA, what was particularly interesting is the adenovirus appears to have mutated very little over those tens of thousands of years. This is not like a rapidly evolving coronavirus that we're seeing right now. Its ancient DNA looked very similar to the sequences of what kids cop now. Certainly the oldest viral genomes we have, so it pushes back the boundaries of what is possible. So that's incredibly exciting. But it also allows us to start to test some hypotheses. And, and one of which is for many of these kind of common childhood infections, we sort of feel like or it's been postulated that we they share a very, very deep and, and rich co-evolutionary history with us. So they've been evolved perhaps with um, 
Homo sapiens emerging out of the hominin family. They've been with us for a very, very long time. And But also we could use the molecular clock approach to estimate how long we think that adenovirus C has, has been evolving, has emerged based on all the adenovirus C we've sequenced today, but also to include these very, very old genomes. And because we have samples from 32,000 years ago, we have a point in time where we can say we know that the virus was present here. And therefore it can help us to calibrate our timeline to say something about how many mutations, for example, we have between the sample we found back then and the samples we have today. And in that way, say how much have the genome evolved and then you use the mutation rate to discover how long ago these different species diverged. And in a sense, that's the molecular clock. Yes, exactly. So every time you hear about a mutation in in a coronavirus, for example, and they say there's a new variant now, Uh, we have the Delta variant that's very dangerous. And that means that, that a base pair in the genome of the virus have changed. And it's changed in a vital point that makes the virus being able to enter our cells in a different way. So something changes that's very important for it And suddenly it can enter our cells more easily and the body hasn't recognized it yet. And then it has to develop a method to find it yet again. This molecular clock approach was applied to the adenovirus C found on the ancient baby teeth. And that allowed us to estimate uh, a kind of very deep origin to around about 700,000 years ago, which is incredibly consistent with the emergence of our own species. And that's something that just wouldn't be possible using modern data alone. So it's incredibly exciting. It really starts to change what we can say about our understanding of pathogens. And, you know, we very likely have all had adenovirus C at some point. So it's really helping link us to our own history as well. Just knowing that these viruses are actually so old. It's a huge finding in the context of of viral evolution and and what we know about viruses infecting early modern humans, right? It pushes back definitely the earliest evidence for human viral infections, or at least of the viruses that are still circulating today that we still know about in modern population. It pushes back the earliest evidence for those over 20,000 years, right? So it sort of gives us a window into what it might have been like in these early modern human societies, what kind of things they were exposed to, what, what sort of uh, pathogens they were carrying and learning anything about the evolutionary history of, of pathogens, like how they evolve, how they change over time is, is, of course, super important in trying to sort of understand and predict what, what they might do in the future. I mean, so these are the oldest ancient pathogens ever isolated from early modern humans. Uh, so that's extraordinary. But mm-hmm. what can doing this work, unearthing... DNA evidence of ancient pathogens, how how can it help us in the present? How can it help us in the future? Right. Because we're living through a pandemic. We're living through an historic pathogen right now. What this kind of work gives us is uh, the basic scientific knowledge of of how these viruses evolve, like how they have changed over time and also what what has happened already, like what's possible, right? So, So we know for sure now that this type, you know, of variation, these variants, for example, have occurred once. We know they can happen again and they might have a certain effect. Uh, and so we can prepare for that or we can study that before it actually happens again. Um, we can build a catalog, if you want, of viable virus diversity in the past um, and can really try to understand what, what, what this might have been doing in the past to be better prepared for the future. You'd hope so, wouldn't you? Because even though we understood that coronavirus existed, we'd had a, a, a pandemic 
like coronavirus beforehand, we still weren't prepared. We still walked away from some of that crucial research that left us unprepared for the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic. Exactly. So I think maybe maybe after all, this was a wake-up call now. This is going to be a wake-up call now for us to study both modern and ancient viruses even more so that we can learn as much as we can about them and be as prepared as we can be for, for the next one to come. And there's, of course, also a huge potential to, if we can actually amass enough data of, of, of some of these viruses and, and reconstruct the evolutionary history, that maybe we can also reconstruct you know, the steps that were necessary for those viruses to make the jump. Martin Sikora and colleagues have been really lucky to negotiate precious access to nearly 2,000 ancient human remains, ranging from around 31,000 to 150 years old. But Lucy Van Dorp has been doing DNA work with other novel sources. We have a very, very rich set of materials from from historic specimens, and particularly for pathogens, from pathology collections, from medical collections, from museums, um, many, many objects that have essentially sat in drawers for, for years on end, but actually give us opportunities to look at or to generate genetic material from different organisms that lived from, say, 17th, 18th century all the way through to today. And one of the most compelling specimens she's had access to was the blood-spattered newspaper of the notorious French revolutionary physician and journalist Jean-Paul Marat. Jean-Paul Marat was also suffering during this period of the French Revolution with um, a very debilitating skin condition. So A shocking skin disease. Shocking skin, yes, that's probably more appropriate. So <laughs> there's documented history of him struggling to walk with his gait, very red skin, itchy skin. Um, some people have claimed that's why he was so dogmatic in his views. He was so miserable with his skin condition that in order to try and alleviate that constant itching, he used to spend really extended periods in medicinal bathtubs. So much so that he would have a writing desk propped up over the top of his bath, a wooden sort of board where he would sit and annotate newspapers um, within the bath with his sort of consults around him um, so it's been of interest you know what was afflicting him you know that he was a physician himself so perhaps he would have known if it was a very obvious skin condition um, and, and can we work out what these infections were you know people have proposed syphilis leprosy diabetes scabies and, and can we look at the genetic data and try to to hypothesise what might have been affecting him. And so when he was assassinated, as it happens while taking a bath, knifed by one young Charlotte Corday in 1793, extraordinarily the newspaper he was reading was kept by his sister and then stored in the Bibliothèque Nationale. And so two centuries on, a team of scientists come along and sample the blood spatters. And I have to say this was difficult. So as I've alluded to, there's loads and loads of microbes present, working out what's important and what isn't what was a challenge. Um, um, but we were able to essentially take the list of candidates that have been put forward from the historical literature as potentially afflicting him and say, well, do we see any genetic data? Do we see any evidence that supports any of these particular candidates? One in particular, um, a fungus called Melasia restrictor, a fungal pathogen that's known to cause today seborrheic dermatitis, a very itchy skin condition. The other interesting pathogen we had very high prevalence and, and looked old. So that's another important point. They, they showed these kind of characteristic damage patterns we see in old genomes um, was a cutobacterium acnes. So this is a, 
a skin bacteria that actually we pretty much all have on our skin today, but can occasionally be quite nasty, can cause sort of soft and deep tissue infections. And, and here we had, again, quite a good quality genome that looked old, that was present in, in this blood, that um, when we looked at the kind of landscape of diversity in those modern bacteria, we could see that that particular type of cutic bacterium acnes um, tended to cluster with those which are more associated to severe disease. So mm. um, we think it was probably a complex infection with, with multiple pathogens, but we've got two quite strong candidates and it obviously allowed us to, to rule out some of these major um, alternative hypotheses. The diagnosis comes too, well, attempted diagnosis comes too late for the French revolutionary though. He is well and truly dead. Yeah. But, he, but I guess it could, it could help you form a more fulsome picture of what his life was like. You can't be sure of the diagnosis, though, can you? Because, as I think you suggest, the absence of evidence isn't evidence of a particular disease's absence. So there might be something else on the boil in his blood. 100%. We, and we were very careful about that. And, of course, things like immune conditions, you know, we wouldn't have power to, to identify using just the pathogen data. And actually the human data itself was not of sufficient quality to really allow a systematic screen. And it could be that, say, you know, there was an immune condition, he was immunocompromised, perhaps there were all these pathogens at high prevalence as well. But but certainly he seemed like, or the, the blood that we contained from, from this individual did seem like a, like a sick man and someone who perhaps had multiple infections and, and secondary bacterial infections as well. Ouch, that was one sick and itchy French revolutionary. And I I have to wonder what stories our diseased teeth, bones and blood will tell DNA detectives in the future. Thanks to Drs Lucy Van Dort, Martin Sikora and Sophie Holtzmark-Nielsen. More info on our website. Tell your friends about the Science Friction podcast and you can talk to me on Twitter at Natasha Mitchell. Catch you. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.